Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I, I'm proud of y'all. Y'all, we, we, filled out the, we filled out the gym. It was slim pickings this morning when we were praying, and I thought, oh, man, it's going to be like a seven-person Sunday, and then here everybody is. It's good to see you. Um, this week in getting ready, the, the, the Lord does this to me every time. It's like you have to live out what you're going to preach on, so... There's been lots of unexpected things, and like we were singing about earlier, uh, about God's faithfulness, a theme in my own life has been has been submitting myself to whatever God's going to do, even if I don't understand it. And not that He's not gracious to offer some understanding, but lots of times I don't get anything, and I just get to see the Red Sea moment. Um, so that's led us, and we're continuing in the same series of living in the Joshua generation. And this time we're going to look at chapter 2 and 3, and we're going we're to touch a little bit on some future chapters to wrap up a couple things. And so I want to go, I want to give you a statement that kind of will put us in the right mood. God's plan and our expectations won't always line up. Shocker, I know everybody in here is surprised. God's purposes and actions take into account innumerable factors and details, but his ultimate goal remains redemption and restoration of his creation. God's doing big, big things, and he's doing those big things all the way from the top down to the minute details in all of our lives. And there are things, we'll, we, lots of which we probably won't appreciate until we're with him in his fullness. Or that we'll appreciate in hindsight when we go, oh, now I see why I had to walk through that. I see now what the Lord's done in me. So to give you some context, we've already talked about Joshua 1 where there's been this transition of power from Moses to Joshua, Moses is dead, Joshua's leading the people, and the people rally behind him. And the promise is about to be fulfilled. The whole 40-plus years in the desert, there's been this promise, this promise that's, that spans back 500 or more years to Abraham, where he says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you this land, but your people are going to be enslaved, and I'm going to deliver them. Way back in Genesis 15, we first hear of this promise to give, or even further back when Abraham first comes out of his home country, this promise for land. And so now it's, we're at the cusp of that, of that happening. Uh, in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18, we see how some of this promise is supposed to play out. It says, in those towns that the Lord is, the Lord God, the Lord your God has given you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. That's a fun one. You must completely destroy the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. This will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs in worship of their gods, which could cause you to sin deeply against the Lord your God. So this is, this is the degree of expectation. The, the children of, of Israel are here. They're, they're close to the river. We're about to cross, and they're battle ready. 
they've armed themselves at the direction of the Lord, and they have, the, the Lord has told them repeatedly, hey, I'm going to give you the land. And when you get there, you're going to have to destroy everything in it. Now, this is a, we have to look at it in its proper context. The Lord has delayed this destruction, which the word here actually means consecration, to be either destroyed or offered to the Lord. The Lord has delayed this consecration for at least four, but as much as six generations. He tells Abraham way back in Genesis 15, I'm going to give you this land, but the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its fullness. Meaning, I'm waiting. We haven't gotten to the point of no return. And this is a, this is a difficult passage because this is a place where you like destroy everything, kill, I mean kill. It, it says men, women, young and old. It says cattle. It says livestock. It, anything, there's, there's a verse that says anything that breathes. And there's this imperative not to intermarry with the Canaanites and to consecrate literally everything, destroy everything. And so what I want to talk to you about today, because this is the expectations that the Israelites have, is that we're going to go over there and we're just going to slay everything and, and have this victory handed to us. That God, the, what, I, what I'm calling this message is not what you expect. So when we go into chapter 2, after everybody's rallied around Joshua and said, Hey, we're in. We'll follow you. If anybody, there's a verse at the end of chapter 1 that says, If anyone doesn't follow you, follow you, may they die. Like, everybody is in. I don't know if they had swords to clash together to be like, Yeah, let's do it. Or if they were high-fiving. But everybody is ready to go. And so we, we pick up in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua sends out, two spies, to go scout out Jericho and the area around it to see what lies ahead. Starting in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them to scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and, st- and they stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house. For they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied to the king's orders, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you probably can catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So spies get sent. First first oddball out is they're hanging out with a prostitute. Like, that was the first place you wanted to go? This was was on the, uh, this was a high Yelp review in. It's like five stars. We wanted to stop there. That's fine. That's fine. But what I want... What I want you to see is that we go to this town. Who this town is a Canaanite town, so there should be full of Canaanites. Canaanites practiced all kinds of pagan rituals, but one of the most prominent and most um, evil was child sacrifice. 
they did they have done that for four to six generations. So we meet this prostitute, and apparently the, the two Israelites guys there decide to trust her because she could have very easily just hidden them and then been like, yeah, they're right up here. Easy catch. So the first way God has worked unexpectedly is through the redemption and restoration of your enemy. Rahab has at some point heard about the Lord and decided, I'm going to turn from my ways. Now, it might have been right before they got there. But what you have to understand is the Lord is known. Word has gotten back to Jericho about the parting of the Red Sea. And at this point, that was 40 plus years ago. There's been stories and oral histories that have been created around God's delivering his people from Egypt. So these things, this information has flowed into the promised land. And prior to the Israelites arriving to consecrate that land, we see Rahab repenting. She has turned to the one true God for her safety at some point. We don't know how. We don't know what her confession was. But she's felt it appropriate to hide the Israelites and mislead the king's men. Now we come down a little bit into verses 9 through 11 to see that Rahab has responded appropriately to the fear of the Lord. Rahab speaking in verse 9 says, I know the Lord has given you the land, she told them. We are all afraid. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did in Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted with fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things, for the Lord your God is supreme, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So we can see a degree of recognition of keep of that first commandment, love the Lord your God first, place him first in your life. So we see that Rahab has had this had this change. And is no, we don't know what, to what degree she's practicing the local culture or customs, but we see that she now knows the one true God is the true God. It says in Psalms, in um, excuse me, Proverbs 1.7, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. She has responded appropriately to the fear of the Lord. She has recognized true knowledge. She has repented from her ways. She has decided... I'm going to help the Israelites. In Psalm 51, verse 17, it says, The the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. So Rahab, who should have been slated for destruction with everybody else, ahead ahead of the Israelites' arrival, has said, You know what? I think you're the one true God. And based on what I keep hearing, and my experience with these gods that are deaf and blind and haven't done me any favors, I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose the one true God. So Rahab makes a deal with the the the, the Israelite spies and says, "Promise me you'll spare me when you come back." And they say, "Yes, we will. We swear on our lives that we'll that we prom- that we won't." Touch you or your family when we come back. 
And they go back and they share that with um, Joshua. And so we're getting ready. Things are, things are building up to the crossing of the Jordan River. And the Lord instructs the people to get ready to follow the Ark of the Covenant and that it's going to lead the way. So we've spied out the land. They've come back. They've given the report, and they said, Rahab, the prostitute, has helped us. She's going to, to display a scarlet cord out of her window. Fun fact, that also mirrors the, um, mirrors the, the blood of Passover over a doorway so that the, the, the angel of death would pass over the Hebrews. And they say, okay, get ready. We're going to cross the Jordan here in a minute. So we jump over into, into chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before crossing. Three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you've never traveled this way before, they will guide you. Stay about a half mile behind them. Keep a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. No big deal. We'll follow the ark. Those instructions are clear. But, like, we're going over here to, like, conquer the land. You want to you put, like, a, just a few, a few big dudes up front? Like, they know we're coming. You want to just have, like, one sword or maybe a priest while he's holding the ark and have, like, one sword in his hand? And how, why do we have to stay so far back? We have to stay, how far back do we got to stay? A half mile. A ways back. This doesn't, or does this sound like any kind of military move at all? We're going to cross the Jordan River, and the Lord your God is going to be a half mile in front of you. Ark of the Covenant, unarmed priest, presence of the Lord, and he's your point man. Whatever threat is there, God's presence is going first to encounter it. Somebody say amen. Today, God's presence, while it lives in you, goes before you and encounters your future before you get there. Amen? So the second way, the second unexpected way of God here is that we're following God without complete understanding. The Israelites have been in a few battles. They have an idea of what kind of tactics they need to use, and we get to this point where the Lord says, no, I'm going to go in front, and I'm going to go way in front. And I want y'all to just, just walk, just walk in the back. Not what one would expect. Also, right before the river crossing, so we haven't gotten to the river, but as we walk up to the river crossing, we come to the deepest part of the Jordan River. In Joshua 3, verses 15 through 17. It was harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing at its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, 
the water above the point began, to back, began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below the point flowed, flowed on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over, the, over near the towns of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. What does that sound like? Sounds like the Red Sea. We see another affirmation of, I am the Lord your God and I am with you. You are walking through the deepest part of the Jordan in the worst part, in the worst time to come across it, and the ground is dry and the waters are parted. Because you are walking in obedience with the Lord your God. You are following the Lord your God, and he has you, and he goes before you. We see later in Joshua 5 that this, that this even more so, Rahab already mentioned the Red Sea and how people were terrified. We see in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart were paralyzed, and paralyzed with fear because of them. I contend that when the Lord goes ahead of us and when we walk in his ways and are yielded to his understanding, that it terrifies our enemies. I'm not saying because you've got to go conquer a land and you might be real excited about completely destroying your enemies. (laughs) Pre-cross, guys. It's pre-cross. We're post-cross. Um. But God is working in these unseen realms to not only redeem and restore the person you call enemy, but to go before you so that when you get there, there's no fight. That doesn't mean the road won't have bumps. But he continues to show us over and over again that the might and power and glory of the Lord goes before us even when we can't figure it out. I know I'm just preaching to myself. So we see Rahab, Rahab's redemption and restoration. By the way, she is integrated into Israel, and she is in the lineage of Christ. The Canaanite woman, who there were several imperatives not to intermarry and to completely destroy, becomes part of the tribe of Judah and is in the lineage of Christ. If that doesn't give you a picture of how God takes you and makes you a new creation, I don't know what is. So we've gone through the river. We've terrified even more people because now instead of this folklore of the Lord leading people through the Red Sea, no, this happened yesterday. The Jordan River stopped. I don't know if you can picture that in your mind. We we hear this so much it kind of lulls us to sleep. But can you imagine the Tennessee River 
right over, you're going over I-40 bridge, and you just see, like, there's just this wall of water. <laughs> and there's, like, a half million people just r- cruising through. And there's this arc of this arc with these 12 priests holding it in the middle, and the water's not moving. I don't know if you got fish falling out of that, you know, that wall of water. I don't know what's happening. If it was the Tennessee River, there'd be, like, 100-pound catfish falling out of it. <clears throat> or just trash, probably. Washing machines. <laughs> but there's this, this miracle that reinforces the Lord's power and glory and his... I, I, I don't know if that... I'm trying to think of the word that's withness. His presence there. The people are terrified because they know that they're done in. Now, I want you to see that this mirrors this mirrors Christ and the approaching second coming. I would contend, I don't have like a big theological proof to lay out to you, but I would contend that redemption was available just like it was to Rahab prior to the Israelites' arrival. If you had rejected all of your ways. It's like the Lord with us now. The Lord is walking with each of us, whether we're saved or not. And those that are unsaved, he is constantly presenting opportunity and opportunity and opportunity and opportunity and encounter. And we may be blind and deaf to it, and we may go to our grave without it and ultimately be without him for eternity. But at every point, up to that point, up to the hard stop, God is walking there and he's like, he's, choose me. I love you. I love you. I love you. I can't speak for, I can, I can speak for, for it on this side of the cross, but we see Rahab's redemption and I can't help but think that's available to everybody if they responded to the fear of the Lord appropriately. Because we get on down to chapter 6 where they arrive at Jericho. And I'm not going to carry you through the whole thing, but I'm going to read you the first few verses. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. They just heard about them crossing the Jordan. No one was allowed to go in or out. But the Lord said to to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of you or will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times. When the priests blow the horns, or excuse me, on the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast of the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. So y'all, y'all are familiar with the story. That's what happens. But this is the third, in this series, the third unexpected way of God is that we have to rely on God's strategy. We showed up. We've been been helped by an unorthodox resource. We've crossed the Jordan in a strange way. And now we're letting the Ark of the Covenant lead us a half mile ahead and encounter all the things that we're going to encounter first. And now we arrive at Jericho, and instead of starting a siege, 
let's let's say the Lord be like, are you going to give us the city? So I guess the Lord's going to just like open the gate so we can go in. Or maybe he is going to knock all the walls down. But the expectation is not a week-long process. So we see that there's value in waiting on the Lord and his strategy because he says, okay, now it's time. I want you, still led by the priest, walk around. Just walk. Everybody. Everybody walk. Not just the warriors. Everybody. Men, women, children. Here comes the battle. Here comes the battle everybody's waiting for in the promised land. Strap all the infants on. Like, get your bags. We're going to walk around this town. And I, I, don't have the, I don't have the statistics about how big this place was. But I can't imagine that it was a comfortable walk around an entire city. Circle it seven times. On the seventh day, circle it seven times. <laughs> Get your cardio in. And then God answers. God is faithful to do what he says, and the walls come crashing down. Except Rahab's house, because we look back at chapter 6, verse 25. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were in their house because she, has hid, she had hidden the spies and sent hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. God's ways are not our ways. I don't, I mean, we hear that in church and we go, yes, amen. But what does that practically look like in our life? What does that look like when things aren't going our way? Um, the Lord told me not too long ago, I was probably complaining that's probably what I was doing, uh, about the circumstances. And I'm like, if, why, isn't it, why isn't this process working out like I expect? Because I'm, I'm in your will, Lord. I know I'm, I know I'm there. I am affirmed that I am in the middle of your will. I am affirmed that I've given you my full surrender. I'm not holding anything back. Why are things falling apart around me? And his response was, what if, what if my work in you doesn't look like perfect execution? And I was like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's not what I want to hear. I want to see all the right things go right. I want to see all the boxes checked. I want to see everything work out correctly as I expect so that I can... It's, it's funny when you say it out loud. So I can then have faith in the Lord. I want to see the work first and then the faith later. And God says, no, it's not how it works. He said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. And stuff's going to happen in your life and you're not going to have any idea why. And it's not going to make sense. And it doesn't have to. But the point is that through that process, you cling to the Lord. And like we were singing earlier, that in those moments where you feel distant or in those moments where things are becoming frayed or, or painful, that you're connecting with Jesus and you're saying, Lord, I don't get it. 
but I know you go before me. I know this is, you've seen this. And I praise you in the storm, kind of like Paul before he was shipwrecked. The Lord let him in during the, it was like a two-week storm. They'd just been tossed around in Acts. And the Lord clued him in. He was like, hey, this is going to end in shipwreck. And Paul said, okay. He informed the crew. But just because the circumstances were falling apart didn't mean that you abandoned the Lord or that the Lord abandoned you. So I want to encourage you today. I don't, I don't know what's happening in your life, but if you've got turmoil and pain and suffering and all the bad things, I want to encourage you that the Lord is with you. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I know that if you sit still with him, that he will embrace you. He embraces you anyway, even when we don't sit still, but it's hard to really notice when we're running around like a toddler. <laughs> He's with you. And his plans are good. And you may not get to understand. And you may never understand. And I don't want you to make your faith contingent on that understanding. I can't make that choice for you. I just know it's a part of it. And not that you can't ask hard questions or that you can't lament or complain to the Lord. He's there to hear all of your, all of your burdens. But ultimately... He says, yeah, I know. I'm right here. Because it's not about figuring it all out as much as it's about being with the Lord. And if you, maybe you're already halfway there, and I want to, to, to share with you, a fruit of that is going to be peace in the middle of turmoil. You may see it all falling apart, but you realize, man, I'm not, I'm not freaking out like I used to. Or I'm not panicked. Or, man, I really can take a nap. And... There's no higher compliment than being able to take a nap in the middle of a crisis because that's what Jesus did. <laughs> so I want to pray for you. I don't know what to expect from it, but that seems to be the theme. And if, you, if this is a place where you're stuck, I want to encourage you to choose the Lord. So, Father, we, we, give you, we give you our storms. We give you our, our crisis and our, our pain. We give you our understanding. Today we declare that our, our faith, our trust in you is not contingent on us figuring it all out. And we choose to embrace the fact that you love us and continue to love us where we are regardless of our circumstance. Do your work in us, Lord, whatever it is, whatever has to happen, Father, we yield to you. I thank you for the joy that comes in the morning. Father, the, the things you're going to share afterward with us that we'll see in hindsight. And Father, the, the grand revelations you're going to give us in eternity. We bless your name.
Amen.